1: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God!
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really
2: beautiful. <laughs> Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time.
1: Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is starting to become a habit. This is what it sounds like when two people talk to each other. Thanks for being here. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Uh, What happened today? Uh, I cut almost 15,000 words from my manuscript. So that happened. Uh, It's this novel that I'm working on. I'm going back and forth on it. The end of it is vexing me. I'm wrestling with it. I'm near the end. Uh, but i 'm not at the point yet where the end is working properly, and uh, I'm frustrated and I want to have a massive psychic breakthrough. I want to shock myself into a new kind of consciousness. Perhaps I want to uh, go to the Amazon and take ayahuasca. I want to do something drastic. I'm ready. I want a DMT experience. I want to visit a sweat lodge. I want to take peyote in the desert, and I want to confront a mountain lion on a sand dune if you know what I 'm saying. I have, you know, I feel like I have to have faith in the process. This is what I, you know, keep telling myself on a more serious note or on a more uh, practical note. You know, the process might not unfold at the speed that I would like, but uh, what I tell myself is that if I keep sitting down, if I keep trying, if I keep breaking the process up into daily units, eventually there will be a breakthrough. And I have to have faith in that. And uh, what I'm saying today. I suppose, is that I want the breakthrough to happen now. I want it to happen uh, yesterday. And I don't want to have to wait. I want to catalyze the breakthrough. I want to get out of my own way. And I want to see the entire plot of my book all at once in a kind kind of neon, fractalized vision, if that's even a thing. So, anyway, uh, for those of you who missed the news, this podcast now has its own app, The official Other People app uh, has arrived. It's free, and it is available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. So go get that if you don't have it. It's free, and it's a great way to listen to the program. New episodes automatically upload, uh, or they download, or whatever it is. And there are all sorts of bells and whistles on the app. It is an elegant way to keep up with the show, to listen to the show, and so on and so forth. And there's also been a change with regard to the archives of the show and uh, the whole premium access subscription model that just launched, uh, I talked about this in the last episode. But quickly, you get 50 episodes for free. So if you just started listening to the program, you have access free of charge to 50 episodes, uh, starting you know from today and going backwards. And then if you want to get access to the deeper archives, uh, you have to subscribe for what I feel is a nominal fee. There is information at otherpeoplepod.com, the show's official website. Just click on premium access in the menu bar
0: and you can learn all about it. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond,
1: He is the author of several books, the most recent of which is a novel called The Infects. It is a a zombie novel, I guess you could call it, and it is available now from Candlewick Press. So, let's go right to it. Let's get to the conversation. This is me talking with Sean Bodwin, the author of The Infects. I lived in North Carolina when I was
2: really little, and then Connecticut mostly, up through high school. Uh, And then I went to college for a couple years in Ohio and ended up in San Francisco after that, where I was just prior to coming to Seattle.
1: Okay, okay. So let's start at the beginning then. You were born in North Carolina?
2: I was born in Staten Island and proud of it. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Okay, so how did you get from Staten Island to North Carolina then? You were like you were a really little child when that happened?
2: Yeah, I was tiny, and uh, my dad is a. Psychiatrist, and he was an intern back then at a hospital in uh, Staten Island. And then he was in uh, in the Marines, or he was in the Navy, but um, stationed with the Marines in Camp Lejeune, which is in North Carolina. So I lived on a Marine base up until about six years old.
1: Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So your dad was uh, a naval psychiatrist? Is that right?
2: Well, he was a doctor, and Marines don't have uh, their own doctors, so they're assigned <laughs> naval doctors.
1: I was going to say, uh, Marines don't have shrinks usually. I can't imagine like Marines on the couch, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: Well, he wasn't a he wasn't a, a psychiatrist then. He was just a you know going just out of medical school.
1: Okay. So wait. So wait a minute. Okay. So he gets like a uh, a medical degree of some some general variety that allows him to go kind of practice medicine generally, and then he specialized later. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Okay.
1: So uh, I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, I I feel like there is uh, a group of writers that exist out there, uh, you know, that are the children of psychiatrists or psychotherapists Mm. or whatever. And Mm. it's not always that. I mean, you know, I I don't want to overgeneralize, but I feel like it's the kind of uh, upbringing or the kind of parenthood situation that could lend itself toward... Uh, a writerly existence. You know what I'm saying? Like, was your I ha- do. W- like, was there lots of um, therapeutic, uh, you know, vernacular used in the house? Did you kind of grow up swimming around in that and familiar with it in ways and at uh, levels of depth that like the average kid might not have been?
2: Well, I'm sure uh, all kids of psychiatrists, for instance, grew up with like ph- physicians' desk reference right there in front of them all the time. <laughs> you know, this huge red book that would be immediately. Uh, identifiable to us and probably not too many other kids um, but my father actually worked in the state prison system so he's not what the cliche uh, you know doctor sitting on a, um, a chair next to a couch listening to someone uh, babble it was uh, a lot more meat and potatoes kind of psychiatry I guess
1: let's try so, to, let's try to get this guy to stop killing people or at least like to quell his homicidal impulse
2: uh, well you know uh, he did intake uh for the state for the prison system and a lot of times with uh youth, so you know in fact, I knew some people that went through his program when I was in high school, um, but he also did intake at there's a um, medium security prison in that town, kind of where we lived so. It wasn't, you know, that sort of idyllic Manhattan psychiatrist sort of thing that people usually think when I say that, you know, that's what he did for a living.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and is there anything explicit about uh, what he did for, you know, what he does for a living that you feel like you bring with you into your work as a writer? Like, does that, do you, can you trace like a straight line? I mean, obviously parents always influence their children one way or the other, but I mean, do you look at what he did and, and what he might've taught you or how he might've raised you and, and then look at yourself in your own life and with your own work and see some sort of through line?
2: Um, I was definitely, uh, hugely influenced by the fact that when he was, uh, still an intern, when we moved to Connecticut, we lived on the grounds of a mental hospital. Um, <laughs> and it, it's very, as cinematic as you might imagine, the, these um, stone buildings that, you know, all kind of set off in the woods. And it almost looks like a college campus, except there were mentally ill people walking around all the time and counselors. And um, I had to confront sort of the terror of that at a very early age. It wasn't unusual for someone to be in our backyard, you know, who had sort of wandered away from a building or a group setting. Um so, yeah, that definitely has uh, informed me and in st- stuff I write about for sure.
1: Okay. Uh, okay. So, wait a minute. You you split essentially your early childhood years in between living on a marine base and living on the grounds of a mental hospital?
2: <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's very novelistic, although that's exactly how it happened. All right, and it so- was actually really interesting because we lived... Most of the interns lived in this one cul-de-sac, and almost all of them were um, international. So the kids I played with when we lived there were African and Turkish and Filipino and Japanese, um, and so it was kind of a great little setup to, especially in Connecticut, which is typically very white. I was gonna to... say it's like
1: a Benetton ad. So like, you know,
2: <laughs> that's exactly what it was like. Um, and I think, yeah, that informed me a lot as well. I think.
1: Okay, so uh, were you ever, did you ever feel when you have these mental patients wandering uh, into your backyard or whatever, was there ever any danger? I mean, are these people violent mental patients or are they simply just, or, or were they like drugged out and looking, uh, you know, not to be too cute about it, a little bit zombie-like?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was still, you know, six, seven, so I don't. Uh, I don't know if I was aware of any, if there were actually real danger. I doubt it. It seemed like it to me. And a a lot of the people were heavily medicated and, you know, completely disheveled. And so, yeah, there was definitely the scent. It was very kind of Shutter Island, you know, (laughs) cinematically people, there are bars on the windows of some of the buildings and people screaming out of them and, um, you know, psychiatric uh, care was very different in the 70s, obviously, than it is now.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all like. The, I mean, I guess they still do um, electroshock therapy, right? Does that still happen?
2: Well, I think it, it was used a lot back then in the 60s and 70s, and then it fell uh, into disrepute. And now, uh, especially since the equipment is so much better, it's kind of made a resurgence on a, on a much, you know, more precise and surgical level.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm, I'm very mistrustful of medicine, in, or at least skeptical. You know, mistrustful might be too strong of a word, but I'm a skeptic. And uh, I think it's an outgrowth of having a bad low back and the fact that, like, no doctor can really tell you what's going on. It seems like it's just one of those conditions that, you know, might be stress related or might have some sort of, like, structural thing. But I went through all these different processes and paid all this money uh, to get these things done, and nothing really, f- you know, really fixed it, uh, except for maybe, like, yeah. orthotics or something. But. Uh, All of that is a roundabout way of saying that when I look back on medical treatment of days yore, and I'm not talking about like the you know the Middle Ages, I'm talking about like 20 or 30 years ago. You can just look at this equipment sometimes, uh, or just read about what doctors used to think, uh, and you start to realize, like, my God, you know, (laughs) like it can be it can be misguided or it can be primitive. And you know, when you think about electroshock therapy and you think about the equipment, like if you're gonna electrocute somebody's brain. Like, please, mm-hmm. g- please, God, make the equipment good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
2: like, yeah, yeah it's, it's actually terrifying. It really wasn't that long ago. You know, the, the absolute sledgehammer drugs that were commonplace back then, uh, total misunderstanding of uh, the way the brain worked. And, you know, electroshock was, uh, I don't know if you ever read Shock Doctrine, actually that Naomi Klein book.
1: Uh, you know what I have actually like that was like the, or no, what was the one with the no labels? Did she write one? And- oh
2: yeah. No logo. No, or, logo. Yeah, yeah. no logo. No yeah. Well, shock doctrine talks a lot about this Canadian doctor that ran experiments, um, which are funded by the CIA that put people into, um, not only, um, using electroshock, shock, but complete, what's it called? Um, when they sensory deprivation. And they put these people for like a, a month with, with things over their hands and feet so they couldn't feel anything in complete darkness and then feed them drugs with this idea that it would wipe their brain, they'd go back to a womb state, it would wipe their brain clean, and then they, you know you could reinculcate them uh, with a new set of knowledge, which is obviously completely insane. Just trying to, uh, reading that and trying to imagine these people being tortured like that, it, it's, it's inconceivable.
1: Yeah, that's a, yeah. That's in, that's extremely intense. Jesus Christ! And uh, it almost, you know, it's like it's it's got a lab rat feel, you know. Clearly, it's it's a, not not like a therapeutic, or at least a too much lab rat for my taste. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you know something out of the Inquisition, but it's like only four decades ago. Yeah, you know, and and people worked there and thought, well, you know, this makes a lot of sense, and we'll keep treating these patients like this. And they went home and they ate food and went to sleep and you know, presumably didn't have ethical qualms about it because they continued to work there. It just seems completely insane.
1: So, like, what, like, just to kind of draw uh, a line of distinction, you know, you you obviously had this this experience as a kid on the grounds of this mental institution, but what about uh, living on the Marine base do you remember? Or were you too young to really form memories of of all that?
2: Uh, You know, I remember the the barbed wire and the jeeps and, uh, you know, guys, you know, running around in formation and stuff, um, and like the PX and stuff like that. But I was pretty young, so, you know, it's just images as opposed to, you know, really strong memories. Okay. And
1: so what? And did you have siblings?
2: I have one older sister. Okay.
1: And then what kind of kid were you? Like, were you, uh, you know, playing sports or were you extremely bookish from the start or what? Like, what was your personality as as a youngster?
2: Um, I think that's really hard to answer because I think typically people give answers of what kind of kid they wanted themselves to be, uh, you know, versus what kind of kid they actually were objectively. Um, but I I was kind of, I think, a weird combination. I, I read a lot. I was definitely bookish. I uh, spent a lot of time in my room uh, tearing through whatever I could get my hands on. But I also played a lot of sports. Mike? Uh, basketball, soccer primarily, but uh, basketball mainly. Yeah.
1: Okay. What position did you play?
2: Well, uh, I was a point guard for a long time until uh, one summer I had a ridiculous growth spurt and suddenly I couldn't dribble anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that just so ended it. You, yeah. You, the,
1: how tall are you? You're like six? You're, what are you? Six two or something?
2: Yeah, I'm six two. Okay. Uh, um, so suddenly I was a forward
1: like, posting up and everything. You played in high school? You didn't play in college, did you?
2: No, I didn't play in college. And, in fact, I I gave up uh, through high school. I stopped playing. I just played intramurals because I went through that whole, like, sort of angry anti-sports phase sort of thing. Oh, right. But also I didn't – I sort of developed a little bit later. So um, I actually played a lot more sports in college, although it was all intramural stuff.
1: Okay. So what what happened when you left the mental institution? Is that when you moved to Connecticut?
2: Well, that was in Connecticut. Oh, that was. But okay. then, yeah, but then we moved to a different neighborhood after my father wasn't interning there <laughs> anymore. I well, probably we continued to work for that hospital.
1: Okay, so, and then you were in like a more traditional suburban type situation?
2: Um, It was actually rural-ish. Uh, the house we moved to was on a dirt road when we first moved there. Um, and so that part of Connecticut is, um, really heavily wooded. And of course now it's filled with McMansions and stuff. But, uh, back then there was only one other house on the, on the road that we moved to and it was dirt still.
1: Oh, wow. So you just like, like, I mean, how many, how many miles away was this other house? I mean, were you living in, in relative isolation? It sounds like,
2: um, well, it was, it was like new construction, you know, it's kind of like a, a U that they had just bulldozed into the woods um, and you know, I'm not. I shouldn't make it sound like it was way out in the middle of nowhere. Although for that town, it was kind of far on the edge. Um, but the other house was like a, half a mile away.
1: And were you in that? Like, was this is this Connecticut within striking distance of New York City? Uh, you know, a close train striking distance, or is this? It's around?
2: not on the train system, so people who live there don't typically commute to New York. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, okay, and so what uh, What was, like, you know, high school like for you? You said you kind of went into an, an anti-sports phase. Like what, like, what prompted that? Was that just pure adolescence and suddenly you're, you know, listening to different music and deciding that sports are not your thing or what?
2: Uh, yeah, so I started getting into, uh, you know, punk rock and jocks are assholes, and uh, it's more cool to hang out with my friends in a jacked-up torino and smoke pot after school. Sort of... Uh, <laughs> Sort of attitude. Um, yeah, so I kind of walked away from it. But also, uh, you know, I really always really wanted to play football, but I weighed like 140 pounds, so my mother wouldn't lo- allow it. Um, I'm sure that takes away from my street cred now, admitting publicly that my mother wouldn't let me play football. But
1: <laughs> well, no, but that might be smart now. Now that we're learning all this stuff about like head trauma caused by football, you know, like it's a brutal. <laughs>
2: Exactly. I got my
1: head trauma elsewhere yeah right now yeah exactly so uh punk rock like you know you i know from having uh you know read you on the nervous breakdown for years now that uh you know you you're obviously like steeped in music, you have a lot of uh love for music and have um i don't know read about it and written about it quite a bit like wh- how did that start for you like who introduced it to you
2: uh when I was in i think it was sixth grade. My uncle, for some reason, decided he didn't want any of his albums anymore and just gave them to me. Um, And at the time, I had this literally a Donald Duck turntable. It was actually this kind of cool thing. It was like this little white suitcase that had a buckle, and you opened it up, and there was Donald, and his arm was the needle. Um, And I really wanted some records to play on it. And then suddenly I was handed this trove of, like, Neil Young and the Beatles and the Stones and Traffic and Rick Wakeman, um, all you know, pretty heavy classic rock stuff. But I d- I just played that stuff endlessly, and uh, almost immediately, it was like completely smitten with the idea of owning records and reading the liner notes and you know archiving them carefully on my shelf. And I just started buying records from that point on
1: interesting and you know what's even more interesting to me now that i'm thinking about it is why did your uncle decide to just ditch all of his music you know that's an interesting question
2: <laughs> it is and it's one i i kind of have asked him and i still don't have an answer to it i mean he just sort of
1: was he like turning 30 and felt like he needed to grow up or something or was he at like a point of desolation
2: yeah he was a he's an interesting dude and he uh Real long hair, beaded guy, bearded guy that drove a VW bus, uh, played professional rugby, and you know, just like a interesting uh, group of interests, and suddenly just decided I guess he wasn't that guy anymore. And I get maybe the records, you know, sloughing those off was part of that, just kind of changing from persona to persona. But I was the lucky recipient of them.
1: Yeah, and you—I mean—and you immediately, I mean, uh, almost started like fetishizing. I mean, the organization on the shelf and all that kind of stuff. Like, what was it? Was it—I mean—was it the total package, or were you sitting there like pouring over the lyrics, trying to kind of, uh, you know, unpack the meaning, or you know what I'm saying? Like, I—I I mean, I guess it's hard, in some ways, for me to understand my own love of music because I feel like it's something that happens so intensely when you're an adolescent you know like and it's something yeah. that that sort of sadly like i kind of i look back wistfully on that because uh i don't know if i've gotten you know i don't want to get older and crustier or less susceptible to the beauty of music but it just it can never be the same as it is when you're like 16 to 22 or whatever it is like there's that pocket of your life where music just means all and then you start to get a bit older, and it's it can still mean a lot, but it doesn't quite resonate at that level of intensity.
2: It's true. I mean, it, it will never be as transformative or transportive as it was. Especially, I think I was just really lucky to receive those le- records at that age, because you know, in sixth grade, sp- spinning the White Album for hours on end <laughs> every night for a month. You know, I know made me a little bit crazy in a way that my friends weren't crazy, just because they were watching Happy Days instead. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and it, it, you know, it may have had a bad effect on me as well. i <laughs> you, you could do a study so of some sort. But
1: who's your favorite Beetle? Or who? Who was your favorite Beetle then? And maybe who's your favorite Beetle now?
2: Um, I, I really hate the. Beatle distinction where everyone immediately says John's their favorite Beatle because it transfers some sort of like hip cred whereas Paul is looked at as like, you know, not nearly as cool a Beatle Um, even though, you know, I think they're equivalent as musicians and the Beatles don't exist without the exact combination of the two of them but my favorite Beatle was always George. Why? (sighs) Um... I felt like George sort of reflected my personality a little more, like I wasn't uh, cool enough to be John, and I I wasn't out front singing like Paul, because George is kind of in the background and kind of quiet, but you sort of had a feeling, there was something interesting going on with that guy. Yeah, I sort of identified with that.
1: Did you see the Martin Scorsese documentary on him?
2: I, I didn't see the whole thing, but, yeah, I saw part of it. When I thought it was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, the, he just, you know, clearly had less of an... I mean, he he still had quite an ego. I mean, uh, any, it seems like most good artists have some dose of that, but it, it, he clearly made it secondary to John and Paul. I mean, you know, he was content to kind of sit back a little bit.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, at some point, like, how can you live that life and be that persona without developing a huge ego i don't know if he necessarily had it back when they were in germany playing at the rafskeller or whatever yeah
1: Um, but but but, it's so crazy to think though the beatles were really only together for eight years and uh you know the force of what happened there just blows me away like in terms of just how far reaching it it, it's been and how you know uh, even if you're not necessarily like a huge like crazy beatles fan you know those songs you know everybody knows those songs like it I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm sort of amazed by that. I'm sure they probably it, are too, you
2: know. It's that weird confluence of they were exactly in the right place at the right time for that to explode, you know, just like the social dynamic in the early 60s and and radio taking off and the British invasion and just the dawn of rock and roll and everything. But it's also the fact that just like an incredible group of talent you know
1: well that's what i was going to say too i mean it's not only the right place at the right time in terms of like where they were in the in the course of music history but also you know john and paul living within like you know spitting distance of one another like what are the odds that two guys who can harmonize like that and who have that kind yep. of monster talent just happen to be like at the same school or i don't know if they were at the same school but you know what i'm saying like at least in yeah. neighboring schools so it just strikes me as something that like I can't define in anything other than cosmic terms after a while. And just to try to tie it back into writing, like I've asked this question uh, on this show before, uh, trying to get writers' thoughts on how careers take off, you know, and how it Mm -hmm. happens. And, you know, you wonder, you know, because I guess when you talk about the cosmic element of things, that includes uh, the, you know, aspects of the business part of it. You know, not only were John and Paul in the right place at the right time, but, uh, there was, uh, it was it George Martin. Am I going to forget? These? Yeah. He was like their, yeah. their producer. They're like, whatever you want to call it. Svengali or I don't know.
2: Rasputin. <laughs>
1: yeah. I forget. I don't know what the, the word is, but you know what I'm saying? Like that person has yeah. to be there as well in order to facilitate. And a lot of the pieces have to come together. And so what I, what I often wonder is, you know, obviously it's like a book comes along that, that somehow articulates something that is just perfect for the moment. Uh, and mm-hmm. somehow captures something about the way that a lot of people happen to be feeling at one particular time in history. Uh, but then, uh, you know, there, there's got to be like the marketing machine. Maybe the author does something. And like, how do you conceive of that as an author? Like, do you think it's largely out of your control, or do you harbor any hope that there's maybe something you can do uh, to elevate yourself?
2: I, you know, maybe it's just a cop-out. and makes it easier for me to sleep at night, but I kind of think it's completely random. I mean, I think our our brains are set up to try to find meaning and stuff like, well, how, how it was fated that Paul and um, John went to the same school, but how many thousands of bands did they have one talented guy and four guys who couldn't play, and then it, they just never became a band? You know what I mean?
1: Well, and it's also, you know, you have to have guys who are willing to make that level of commitment.
2: And, yeah. You know, well, the, especially... drummer got, the drummer's girlfriend got pregnant, or, you know, they all started doing a lot of acid, or, you know only one guy was actually really good and he never found the other person that pushed him the way those two did. And so their mu- his music ended up being just kind of mediocre.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wonder, do you think that there's any kind of like symbiotic relationship like that that happens with writers? Because, you know, obviously it's a lot more solitary of a pursuit and you don't need other people in order to do it in, or at least, the, you know, the actual act of writing itself. But is there any, has there ever been a writer in your life uh, that you've actually known or maybe even not known that you feel like performs that kind of function where you sort of measure yourself against them or you, you compete against them somehow?
2: Um, there's been a lot of people at different stages in my life, I think, that have, you know, performed that function. But it's, it's interesting what you said about George Martin, because he was a genius and his recording techniques are a huge part of the Beatles sound that he doesn't really get any credit for. It. And you listen to Beatles demos and then you listen to how he put strings in and, uh, you know, rearranged the songs. Um, and had them play different parts. It's completely different songs in, in ways that wouldn't have seemed like iconic and amazing as they uh, they do now. Probably.
1: Well, it's just like a, um, a writer has to have. I mean, often has to have a great editor. You know, it's very rare.
2: well. That's what, that's what I was thinking is to make the analogy between uh, you know Gordon Lish and uh, Raymond Carver. You know, the sort of controversial how how much of a hand he had in Carver's writing I and mean, would we know carver now you know without the two of them and the the fact that uh you know that that relationship doesn't really exist anymore
0: in in publishing
2: as we know
1: it i was thinking about i think it's john martin and bukowski too you know because bukowski would just sort of like hand him like a pile of like you know tobacco stained pages or whatever and he would he would kind of clean it up you know so uh, yeah probably similar you know to lish and carver but I don't know. It doesn't seem like you hear of authors having those kinds of, like, really deep and, uh, like, hyper-involved relationships with their editors anymore, though I'm sure it happens, like, in pockets, you know, but um, most of the time. And, and I feel like in defense of editors, and, uh, you know, I think that they're they're taking on a lot more work uh, than, they, yeah, than they used to. Like, editors of Days Your, I think, I, I'd read somewhere, like, we're editing, like, 12 manuscripts a year or something like that. Mm-hmm fairly manageable, whereas today it's like two or three times that that amount, and so you just can't, you know, they're spread too thin.
2: It's just the idea, like, the whole purpose of a uh, publishing house and being an editor was, you know, if we make a little bit of profit, that's great, but we're, we want to put out stuff we really believe in. We want to put out great literature, and now, you know, the corporatization of publishing, it's we're making a profit no matter what, and so you know, how many books are we going to put out and which one is going to hit the wall like Twilight or, you know, the Mariah Carey of books. Um, and it's not all about, hey, I'm going to shepherd this book because I see a, a bauble within, <laughs> you know, and we're going to go through a bunch of drafts together and I'm going to send you all these notes and we're going to stay up till midnight talking about it on the phone and, <laughs> you know, drink bourbon and, I'll, you know, I'll I'll line edit pages for you and tell you why as we're doing it. I mean... Maybe someone has that relationship, but not that I've ever heard.
1: It's amazing how much mileage I've gotten out of that fantasy, though. You know, just like, <laughs> ha-
2: having
1: having that person. Like, I would. I think any writer would love to have somebody who takes that level of heightened interest in their work. And also, you know, I should say, like, even though you don't necessarily have um, that level of intensity when it comes to your editorial relationship, like any kind of editing that you do get, whether it's from a, an editor, you know, at a publishing house or. At, uh, from a colleague or from a spouse or whatever it is, but whenever somebody saves you from yourself, uh, yeah, there's just enormous gratitude there. <laughs> you
2: know, like, Absolutely, and I always feel like I'm three people shy of having been saved. <laughs> you know, in anything I've, I've worked on, no matter no matter how many people I've showed it to.
1: So yeah, and like so, let's let's talk about that, like process-wise. Like you finish a manuscript, I know that I know you, and I know the way you work. Like you're pretty exacting. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you're pretty, you know, you, you're pretty hard on yourself, I imagine, like going through the manuscript on your own. But once you have a manuscript done, then what? Do you immediately go to your agent, or do you go to to uh, like a small circle of people or writer friends who read for you first?
2: Mm. So kind of every book has been a little bit different. I definitely have a small circle of people I show stuff to and try to get feedback. Um, I'm a really obsessive reviser, uh, which may be apparent or may in, or come as a huge surprise for, <laughs> for people who have read my book.
1: Totally <laughs> shocked. Um,
2: but, you know, even like essays I've written for Nervous Breakdown or other sites, uh, I don't know, if you look at the way they're posted and how many revisions uh, sit there behind what actually ends up getting put up, uh, I tend to go line by line and really think about it and change stuff around until it feels exactly right to me. And I don't, I don't know that there's an editor who could do that for me, unless I was one of the four authors they were juggling. You know.
1: So do you, do you feel like you have a certain weakness? Like if they're not necessarily helping you with the, I don't know, the the language itself. Is it? Do you find that you have structural? Are there structural things that you'll sometimes miss that they point out and and uh, help you out with? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, where do where do you usually wind up needing help, or is it is is there a consistent thread there?
2: Um, well, I, I happen to have two editors right now, so I'm going through two different publishers and they both have a fairly similar sort of hands off style where their notes are larger picture kind of thing. You know, this may not be working or, uh, it's not line editing, take this out, you know, completely change this character. It's more, um, macro stuff. Um, which I, I, if it's not going to be someone who's going to get down and like really parse verbs with me, then I kind of prefer that hands off, you know, it seems to be the worst kind of editorial, um, function would be right in the middle of that. Yeah. I
1: was just, yeah. you know, I was, was going to say, it's like, it's kind of like you've got to go all in or you've got to just decide that you're going to take like the 30,000 foot approach and, you know, try to, yep. see, try to see the whole beast, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. So, uh to get back a little
1: bit to your biography, you are, you know, kind of this uh, punk, you know, punk uh, rock uh high school student or whatever. Uh, were you a fairly good student? And then what led you um or or I guess where I guess what I'm trying to say is where did you wind up going to to college?
2: Um well, I I got really into hardcore, which is a sort of subset of punk. Um and and listening to that music, which was really popular, especially in Connecticut in the 80s, and I could reel off tons of bands that, unless you were right there, was, you know, part of that scene, you probably never heard of. Um, but I I was a good enough student uh, at subjects that I could just wing, which were, uh, you know, art and English and and writing and you know, non math and science courses that I could just not study at all and still coast by the other stuff, you know, I was such the prototypical and boringly cliched angry teenager that I just, I just started to blow high school off entirely the last two years I was there. I mean, I still managed to graduate, but I didn't put a whole lot of effort into it.
1: So where did you wind up going to school afterwards?
2: (laughs) I went to Antioch College in Ohio, um, and people laugh when I say that it's a joke but I actually what happened is I swore I would never go to college and so uh, when I graduated high school I moved to DC and lived there for a year and after paying rent and busing tables for a year, I, I decided maybe going to college would be fun after all.
1: Yeah, but see, I think, <laughs> I think a year off like that is probably a healthy thing. I always say I wish I would have had that experience. I think it would have been good for me just because I was so sick of school when I finished high yep. school. I, like, I literally was ready. To, I mean, my last semester of high school, I, f- I failed classes. I just did not give a shit. I was done and i think you know it's like it's an exhausting amount of work and going to high school every day is i don't know you know i feel like having a break after going through 18 years of that or, or not 18 but 14 or 15 years of schooling is not an absurd request or, or, or an absurd desire you know
2: it was fantastic for me it's the smartest thing i've ever done um maybe for some kids it wouldn't be exactly right although i really do think there should be like a national service thing that's tied into like, if we do, or don't have a draft where if, you know, you wouldn't have to necessarily do military service, but would have to spend a year or two just working somewhere, you know, a youth corps sort of thing. But um, by the time I got to college, I, you know, I was ready to study. I went to all my classes. I just, I felt like, if my parents are paying whatever tuition they're paying um, and I'm not going to read and I'm not going go to go classes and I might as well just move to San Francisco, you know, like, why am I in college if I'm not going to apply myself?
1: Yeah. And so what, is, uh, and so you were at Antioch for only a couple of years though and then you, then you transferred.
2: Um, yeah. I, uh, Antioch is a, a work study program, so there's no summer off. And so you work six months of the year, and then you study six months of the year, and then purportedly the six months you're working, you're working in the field that you're studying, and you get academic credit for it. Does that make any sense? Yeah,
1: no, no, that no. makes. I mean, it, it makes almost like alarmingly good sense that you would actually include like a work component in your education in in your field of interest. You know,
2: like yeah, uh, theoretically, uh, Horace Mann, you know, came up with the idea. Uh, theoretically it's a great idea in practice again I think it depends on your personality but um, one of my first co-ops was in San Francisco and then once I got there, I'm was like, i not going back to Ohio yeah um, <laughs> the <right. And you're laughs> like- reasons I, I'll have to spend the next 20 minutes explaining
1: to you yeah well I mean you know when you're 19 years old that you know San Francisco I mean I don't care what age you are San Francisco such a beautiful place and it's got to be a super fun place to be when you're young
2: yeah yeah, it was amazing. So I I took classes at, in San Francisco and transferred back the credits, and I still ended up graduating from Antioch. But I was only there about half the time.
1: Okay, so what were your what were your like early twenties in San Francisco like?
2: Oh man, how many hours do we have?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just give me give me like a couple of highlights. I mean, like first of all, did was there a detectable shift in your uh, interests and your attitudes? Or, I mean, or were you still like? similar like you know it's like the angriness of your adolescence like once that started to maybe dissipate a bit like then what happened
2: I just I loved I loved being there I loved having an apartment and being responsible for my own rent and having a job and and feeling like an adult you know post-college adult Um, I was still enthralled with sort of a pathetic literary no, lifestyle notion of, you know, reading Bukowski in cafes and, you know, typing up poems and, and thinking I was a budding writer. Why
1: do we um, all do that? We all do it. I don't
2: know. <laughs>
1: Everyone. I mean, it makes me, like, it comforts me to think that we all take on some version of that somehow, but it's like, you would think that by now we would have learned better. We would have had enough information from our forebears in order to avoid, you know, but it's just, it's, it's like a rite of passage.
2: Maybe endearing and, and sort of sweet and wonderful but maybe it's not maybe it's really pathetic <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. I know that how it, that's how it feels for me in hindsight but I mean you can't be too hard on yourself and I think what it is ultimately is it's coming you know it's a, it's a matter of hero worship and you're trying to kind of emulate the you know you're trying to emulate I guess your ideal version of what it would be to be a writer I guess
2: Yeah, because there's no manual. No one tells you. And there actually is no real way to be a writer when you're that age because you can't write. Right. Almost nobody, you know, one in 100,000 people has anything worth saying when they're 23. And even fewer people can then actually put it on the page in an interesting way. So you have to go through that period where your writing just sucks, (laughs) you know, and and you're really self-righteous about it and have a really high opinion of yourself, which is completely unwarranted.
1: Yeah, you have all these, like, grandiose ideas. And, you know, I think back to my own uh, apprentice years or whatever and reading through, uh, you know, a lot of older novels and sort of picking my heroes from several generations back rather than, you know, picking them uh, as much from my kind of, like, contemporary generations. And, like, one of the indicators of just how, like, deluded I was uh, in those early years is that I kind of was still operating as though writing was right at the center of the culture or that I, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I believe, yeah. I believe that like the writer rock star still existed and, you know, like it yep. and existed in mass. I and mean, I guess it still happens, but it's just like at such a smaller scale than it used to be. And, uh, I was, I don't know. I had such a naive understanding of where the culture was relative to where I actually was and where my interests slide, you know, lay or whatever. So I don't know if you were the same way. I mean, maybe you, yeah,
2: I did feel that too. Although I, I think I felt that it, or saw it more as a refuge, you know it was like late Reagan, early Bush, and people who hung out in bookstores and authors seemed like you know a cabal of actually sane people uh non awful people uh that I kind of wanted to be a part of and hang out with, but I know what you mean like i I was very naive about you know i I thought I would just get discovered, you know. Someone would be like, "Hey, that's kind of a cool poem you wrote on a napkin. while you drank three <laughs> cups of coffee. <laughs> you know, why, why don't I put out a book of yours?"
1: <laughs> and it just doesn't happen like that. So, uh, what was your learning curve on the business side of things with publication? Like, how much failure did you come up against? How many, You know, how did you handle the rejection? Like, well, how did you get your comeuppance essentially and finally get yourself to the point where you were writing things that were worth publishing?
2: Well, I think I was really lucky that also right at that time in San Francisco, the fan zine community exploded. Um, I don't know if you know anything about zines, as they're commonly referred to.
1: I mean, a little bit, you know, not not a ton. I was never involved in one.
2: Um, it's just, it's pre-internet still. Um, there, This community, national community sprung up um of people just putting out their own little publications called zines and you know most of them were about music but some of them were about, you know, movie stars and sports and drinking or, you know, whatever your particular interest was. Um and it was it was actually pretty amazingly um widespread. There were conventions that I used to go to and there was a this thing called Fact Sheet Five, which was a national publication that refu- reviewed like, I don't know, two hundred zines an issue. Um and a lot of mailing back and forth and people getting to know each other and trading zines and stuff. Um, and so I started to put one out and, uh, I put 14 issues of that thing out thing by the time it finally died. Um, so I had this sort of apprenticeship that I kind of just made up uh, on my own and sort of learned what it's like to, you know, write on deadline and, and, I did all the distribution myself and it was really eye-opening as to what actual publication might entail.
1: Yeah, so what did it look like? Like what was the level of quality in terms of the actual physical object?
2: Um it actually got pretty good. Uh you know, it was all xeroxed and folded by hand and stapled by hand. Um but my personal sense, you know, most people uh tried to sink as little money into theirs as possible and and a lot of them the look of them reflected it but i always paid for color xeroxes for the covers um which i thought made it look pretty cool and stand out and i was just learning photoshop so i had fairly exacting standards for a zine for you know compositionally it it looking good and being kind of slick
1: and then uh then you would just like what put it out for free in coffee shops or did did you actually try to sell it
2: no no i sold them i uh there were a lot of uh, bookstores in San Francisco then that would take them on consignment. And you know, video stores and uh, you know, the place where they used to put out maximum rock and roll, that magazine had like a zine sales uh, counter. Um, but also I sold them you know, through those magazines. So I sold a lot through the mail. And by the end, by like the 10th issue, um, Tower Records started distributing it at like Tower LA and Tower Chicago. So um it started it, to get a fairly it, wide circulation.
1: What was it called?
2: It's called Zapruder Head Snap. Zapruder okay. okay. Head
1: <laughs> <laughs> Snap. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I like it. And uh do you still have copies of this thing? I assume you have them somewhere archived.
2: I do. Uh, you know, I have the exactly as you'd imagine cardboard box that's all duct taped up with unsold copies. Um but I, I, there's one of them that I sold out of and never made any copies. So there's one lost issue that I no longer have. Which
1: okay. Okay. So there's like when you go on to to you know fame and glory, uh, there is going to be like this is the, the like the the rare object. The the lost issue of the pruder head snap is something going to be worth a lot. So anybody listening, exactly. if you if you are in possession of that, I, I would recommend keeping your keeping your hands on it.
2: Uh, exactly. Or contacting me and you know trying to get two hundred dollars from me out of it.
1: So uh, when you were doing this, when you were doing this zine and you were doing uh you know this music writing, were you th- were you harboring literary ambitions or were you thinking of yourself as a music journalist or both?
2: Um no, I always thought of myself as about to be discovered novelist. Um even pretty much from high school. I always sort of had the impression that that's what I was going to do and so the zine thing was just part of you know getting my chops together. Getting my name out there, but I always thought eventually I was going to write a book. And what um, what, what, what were the authors? The
1: what were the authors when you were a young uh, a young kid? That like what what was it that caused you to really snap into this? Like, can you point to a book or to a reading experience or a, a couple of reading experiences that really solidified that for you?
2: Um. I, uh, yeah, I've been asked uh, a lot of times, you know, what were the most influential books at that age, and I always have to say the same thing, it's Basketball Diaries by Jim Carroll.
1: And that was it. Well, I guess, I mean, it sort of makes sense, you were a basketball player, but you also had kind of a poetic bent, and then there was, he, he, he mm-hmm. also had the punk rock thing going, so he kind of embodied a lot of what you're interested in, you know, back in those days, right? But
2: his prose is also so accessible, you know, it's very deceptive. It's really difficult to write like he did well, um, but it's very easy, very funny um, very stylized
1: very but the, uh, yeah, but I mean it's like you wonder how much consciously conscious stylization and like how much of that was a function of youth and being unencumbered by the kinds of uh, pretense that sort of creeps in on anybody who has enough uh, time to sit around thinking about this stuff. I mean, I could be totally wrong. He could have like sat there and doctored every sentence, but it seems to me like, like, especially with that book, there's a kind of raw vitality to it, which is, Mm -hmm. which is the allure of it. And I don't know if, you know, like trying to capture that raw vitality might be exactly what everyone's trying to do every time they sit down to write. And I just don't know if maybe, uh, you know, the fact that he was so young when he wrote it was the, the key or if it was just you know uh,
2: I think I read I think it was in that Patty Smith book. I can't think of the title it just came out a couple of years ago. Just, just kids, yeah, just kids. I think that it was in there, maybe it was somewhere else, but i I read that he actually wrote all that stuff when he was like twenty seven you know it came from his original notebooks, but this you know he tied it all together and polished it and stuff. he was in his late twenties. I don't know if that's true or not, but the, I think I read that in there.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I, I'd be interested to see. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all uh, because so often you hear about these like magical writing uh, mm-hmm. achievements and it, there's always more to it. You know, it's like on the road, you know, like the it wasn't just that he sat down for, you know, three weeks and shot it off in one big stream of paper. Like that was something he'd been sort of composing. Uh, for,
2: well, it's a myth, you know, yeah, and it, it's a myth mean. you can ride on, and I, I'm sure he didn't go around correcting anyone. And Jim Carroll obviously let everyone think that because it's a good story.
1: Yeah, I just, you know, I guess the the thing that I'm driving at is that I wonder if you could look at those notebooks and then compare them to what actually wound up in the in the book itself. Uh, mm-hmm. How much was done? But just just the mere fact that he had notebooks to go by, uh, those notebooks, you know, might contain the kind of you know might be the source of the vitality that I'm talking about, like. I see, it, um, I see it in writing all the time that isn't intended for publication. Like it's, and tell me if you disagree, but I feel like just the very act of sitting down with the idea that like I'm a professional writer and I'm sitting down to write a book that's going to be printed somewhere and people are going to read it, like that brings into the experience a level of self-consciousness that automatically robs writing of a certain vitality and mm-hmm. and some people, you know, and maybe there are some writers out there that have sort of this kind of like wild, untamed, uh, not not cerebral approach that lends itself more to this kind of thing. It's like the more intuitive artist rather than like the thinker. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely true. And uh, you know, the one thing that we don't talk about with writing a lot now is that part of the reasons that Basketball Diaries was brilliant is because he had those experiences. You know, at 17, he was playing big time city basketball and he was a junkie and he was living in Manhattan and being crazy and, you know, living through the blackouts and all that stuff he wrote about is experiential and really, really interesting. Whereas, you know, a lot of people writing now are, especially in their 20s, they're out of an MFA program and they're working at Urban Outfitters. And, and what, how great a writer do you have to be to say something interesting about that?
1: Well yeah, I mean exactly. That's a, that's I mean that's the other question is that if if what I'm saying has some grain of truth to it and if you're a more cerebral writer, which mo- most writers are, you know, and most writers especially become as they start to consider themselves writers, you know, then if you can't replicate the kind of raw vitality of youth or whatever in the work that you you might have been able to generate when you were 15 or 16 or 19 or whatever, um, you know, I think it is still possible to write something that feels really vital, but the question is, how do you get there? And mm-hmm. you know, if you, it's it's hard to even articulate this, but like I think about the Basketball Diaries, and it seems sort of on the surface, uh, crackling with energy, whereas mm-hmm. when you, when you read something that you know is coming from somebody who's obviously really self aware and hyper conscious of the fact that they are in the act of writing something for publication. Like, do you think that maybe if you get to a level of vitality that really resonates, it's because you've drilled down so deeply into whatever it is you're talking about? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you think it comes from depth rather than energy? I I don't know.
2: I remember, uh, when I was living in DC in, in 87 and I was reading a ton of Hunter Thompson, who's another person I could have mentioned as, as being incredibly formative and one of my early heroes I wanted to emulate. But, uh, you know, I was reading uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, which is about the Nixon election in 72. And at the very same time, the whole Iran-Contra thing was going on. And I was living in D.C., and every night I was watching these hearings and Oliver North and Fawn Hall and General Secord and Ed Meese and, you know, these evil people who are great characters. Um, and I, I was sitting there thinking, like, I should write all this stuff down. I should, every night I should take notes about the stuff that's happening and, and these hearings and kind of spin it like Hunter Thompson does. And I thought, you know, he just lived in a more interesting time, like the early 70s. Was just, that uh, Nixon stuff's iconic. If I do this now, it would be really boring. And if, I, I regret often that I didn't sit and because I would love to go back and read that writing now about that exact circumstance. And I bet, to your point, um, it would be far more vital and more interesting than if I sat down now and tried to recreate that.
1: Yeah, you would, you would almost, I mean, I bet you would, you would obviously have to do work on it, but you'd have the raw materials there that you just couldn't generate. Uh...
2: Exactly. There's no way I could recreate the, my innocence and naivete and political innocence. And lack of cynicism, or at least the encrusted cynicism I have now. There's no way I could get that back without that raw, those raw notes.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, you mentioned Hunter Thompson. Like, he obviously gets tons of credit, and there's a lot of, fa- you know, he's a very famous writer. He's kind of the writer as mm-hmm. rock, st- he's the writer as rock star uh, of contemporary times, maybe to a, mag- a level of magnitude that n- nobody else has quite achieved you
2: know like yeah definitely
1: yeah i mean totally but one of the things that you know i think is so important to point out or at least from my perspective is that when you read him at his strongest like he was so fucking good like he was really 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 good and very smart you know like Mm -hmm. um and i feel like sometimes he you know all of like that particular truth gets eclipsed by the fact that Uh, you know, he had this sort of like spectacularly messy and, uh, you know, eccentric personal life or whatever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He's amazingly talented writer that I think people don't give him Credit for his writing ability because he is that rock star, and also the kind of stuff he wrote and the subject matter and drugs and everything. But the the sentence making and the prose is uh, is really amazing.
1: Well, and and, uh, and just like the the gift as a as a writer of uh, comedic literature, like that, like his humor and his ability to. Like his ability to be mean, (laughs) Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like mean humor. He was especially good at that. And uh, you know, like the litmus that I always use when I'm reading somebody to decide whether or not uh, I really love their work. You know, there's often a humor component because that's just the way that I'm wired. And Mm -hmm. when I start finding myself laughing out loud at a book, which I almost never do, then I'm done. Do you know what I'm saying? Like once you have me laughing out loud, then. Then I'm probably going to love your work forever. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And actually, he, you know, back to the Jim Carroll experiential thing, Hunter Thompson had a lot of interesting stuff to write about. He did hang out with the Hells Angels and buy a motorcycle and spend weekends with them and hang out with at Ken Casey's house and drop yeah. acid and you know he was there through those campaigns. He was right there in D C during the whole Watergate thing. And I don't know if that's lucky or smart or he just forced himself to be in those situations, but he had really interesting stuff to write about.
1: Well, yeah, he had like, he had, he's one of those people who had uh, or one of those writers who had an instinct of, of sort of showing up in the place, you know, in camps, mm-hmm. uh, just like a moment before it became the place. Somehow he was always mm-hmm. there. Like he was in San Francisco. Uh, there's that great line in fear and loathing where he talks about the wave breaking, you know, he sort of yep. saw that he was at Kesey's place with the night that the hell's angel showed up and dropped acid You know, he got his ass kicked by the Hell's Angels. They beat him within an inch of his life. But, but but the thing about him, though, is that, and and the thing about that is that, you almost get the sense, uh, reading about it, that he almost wanted that to happen. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like it's almost like part of the story. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he was out there to get the story, and if it meant that he had to get his ass kicked to get the story, then well, he just get his ass kicked.
2: Well, yeah, there's that great part where he buys a, I think it's not a BMW, but it's an English, but BSA, you know, all the rest of them have Harley. So, of course, he doesn't want to have a Harley. He gets that BSA and he's talking about driving down a Half Moon Bay on it and eventually wiping it out and what wiping a bike out was like. And the whole time I was reading that, I was thinking, of course you wiped it out. That was never not going to happen. The experience of that was what it's all about it's the same thing with getting beaten up. I'm sure he pushed it to the point that they were going to do it no matter what, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, and then, you know, the the thing too about guys like him, uh, is that when you live that way, uh, you know, you you have sort of, I think a a truncated period of time where you can write at your best. And I think that was definitely the case, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, or you can get it back in short bursts, but you know, it's a candle that, that burns at both ends when you live like that. So, uh, I think it's, it's a hard way to, it's a hard way to be a writer. And, Uh, you know speaking of your own experience like if you were uh, you know lionizing guys like Jim Carroll and Hunter Thompson as a young writer like were you doing a lot of drugs in your 20s and you know experimenting with all that kind of stuff like you you seem to me like somebody who uh, has a greater degree of control where that stuff is concerned but did you ever have a period where you where you weren't in that kind of control
2: Um, well I would answer that by saying I I quit taking any drugs in 1995 so I guess that displays a degree of control but, um, yeah, before then, yeah, I was definitely experimenting and with the idea, you know, that somehow it's going to help me be a better writer and, you know, Burroughs was doing this and, you know, Henry Miller was doing that. So of course I have to, because otherwise I'm not going to be as good a writer as them, which is, you know, of course is completely moronic. Um,
1: but, but is it though, I mean, like, you know, because I, am conflicted about this, you know, like I had drug experimentation, uh, I had a drug experimentation phase when I was younger that I feel like is you know pretty tame and predictable when I look back on it though at the time I wanted to think of it as being so much more uh, gigantic you know but yeah I, I i as much as I think that you know it 's very easy to take those t- things too far and it 's very easy to uh, be harmed you know by by taking what 's ultimately toxic um, you know there 's also something to be learned there and something that informs that can inform your art, you know, your artistic work in a really significant way. So I don't know. I always, whenever I start to think about it or talk about it, I find myself in some big gray area where I can't define it one way or the other. You know, I kind of see it all. I see it as being all of those things at once. Oftentimes.
2: Well, the big secret of writing is that you have to be that guy that turns stuff down and stays home and writes. You know, like even when I was putting out a Zapruder head snap, people are like, oh, man, I'm going to put out a zine or how do you do it? Or, I, you know, I started a zine, but I could never finish it. And it's because you, you have to sit your ass down in a chair and be boring and pound that stuff out. And if you're taking a lot of drugs, you're probably not going to do that. You know, so just completely pragmatically, uh, you know, I've. Even Bukowski, you know, admitted at the end of his life, the, the way he portrayed himself drinking and how much he was actually drinking uh, weren't really exactly the same thing because he never would have written anything at all. Well, yeah. uh, and Hunter Thompson, too, you know?
1: No, he wrote, like, that's the thing. Hunter Thompson wrote uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, or, or, no, like, I don't know if he wrote it 100% sober, but I want to say he went to Las Vegas. And didn't really go completely nuts when he was there. Like the trip that he based the book on, you know, was not necessarily uh, you know him recollecting actual experience. It, it, those, no, th- not at all. Those drug experiences that he had, you know, he had definitely taken mescaline and he had probably taken ether or whatever. But it was just wasn't on that Vegas trip. And then, um, you know, just to bring it back to uh, Kerouac and that whole myth. Like I want to say that I read. Uh, A literary bio of him and the three weeks that he spent like pounding out the bulk of uh, on the road on that like that roll of butcher paper or whatever was like an unusually sober time for him where he was like staying with some girlfriend and she was just like bringing him soup and coffee and he was just working in this kind of, uh, you know, uh, sober way,
2: you know. Yeah, we want those myths to be true, but they're not. Hunter Thompson had a contract to write the Hells Angels book and was pounding through it seriously and wrote Fear and Loathing as a relief, you know, like at night, as a break from doing the Hells Angels book. And he wasn't in Vegas. You know, that wasn't (laughs) exactly happened that way or recording for it. I mean, it's great that people even think that, that not only is that true, but that it's even possible, you know it's a testament to how excellent a writer he is that <laughs> you would consider well yeah it probably happened just like that in real time
1: right uh, yeah uh, it's it's it, yeah i guess it's easy to believe but it, like not if you've done any amount of writing like it, i think it, the more writing you've done and the more time you've spent like kind of sitting in front of a computer trying to figure out how to put the words in the right order you you find that less and less you know easy to believe
2: but he did do a ton of drugs over time, obviously. And when I was living in San Francisco a few years after that, he had a column in the Examiner once a week, and it was kind of sad. Yeah, well, his would, weekly column compared to his other writing. Well, yeah. he obviously had been affected.
1: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. That's what I'm saying. And like you know, his ESPN column in the later years, like it was just sort of like a uh, diminished, like a you know, severely diminished. You can't do that. He was in his sixties, you know, and, and yeah. was still doing blow. I mean, for God's sake, <laughs> know. It's, way too know. it's way too much. It's way too much. Um, so you said you quit in 1995. Like when you say quit, was it like capital Q quit? Like you quit everything or you just kind of faded out the drug experimental phase? Uh,
2: I, w- I woke up one day and I felt so shitty that I said, uh, I'm I'm not doing any more drugs, I'm not smoking cigarettes, I'm not drinking coffee, and I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. Um, And I did quit everything for two years, and two years later started drinking again, but none of the rest of it I ever picked up again.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, like you know, a, a, a good enough hangover, I guess, can do that to you. Must have been a doozy.
2: <laughs> it wasn't even so much as a hangover. It's just, I think mostly it was the cigarettes. You know, I just woke up and coughing, and you know, I just feel terrible. Yeah. Uh, and you just feel yellow. Yeah. And just <laughs> and, the best and, way I can describe it.
1: Well, and just so angry at yourself. Like it's just such a stupid feeling. Like the thing about it for me with hangovers that I can't tolerate. <laughs> Uh, in my adult years, it's just that you lose a day at least. And, right. Uh, that drives me crazy. Like, that's a cost that I'm not willing to tolerate, you know, and uh, my body just can't, you know, bounce back the way that it used to. And I just have too much to do. I mean, it's just a natural function of things. So, I, I, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I feel like my constitu I'm constitutionally weaker than a lot of these people because you look at somebody who's able to produce the way that, like, a guy like Hunter Thompson produced or, like, a lot of writers are able to produce and, like, they don't take care of themselves and they, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's sort of amazing to me. Like the circle, like, like Christopher Hitchens, for instance, was like, just chain smoking and could be drinking. And like that guy could crank out a book in a month. (laughs) You know, it seemed like it. Well,
2: yeah, he's famous for going out, you know, drinking all night with, hanging out with these people and then everyone would stagger home and he would go back to his apartment and, and write a column. Yeah, and and not only that, he not rewrite it, you know, like write a column and then submit it, and it actually being like lucid and incredibly intelligent, <laughs> right? Which is astonishing. I mean, it's a pretty rare uh, ability.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like a, a biochemistry or something. Somebody who's running at a really high speed, and you know, I think like you have to be, you know, I think about people like that, like a guy like Hitchens or a guy like Gore Vidal, especially. Uh, any, mm-hmm. re, any, any writer who really sort of like makes me step back and go, Jesus Christ, like, you know, they're always doing the reading is, you know, that's, that's really the thing. Um, you know, it's one thing to be able to sit down and bang out words and, um, uh, you know, but if you're getting something done, you know, at that level of quality and you're able to maintain that sort of energy and that, uh, kind of live mindedness, like the real discipline or at least a part of the discipline that doesn't get as much credit is the reading. Like those guys must have constantly been reading. Like I would love to just have had like you know a week of Christopher Hitchens' life and when he was in peak form, where there was like, yeah. a closed circuit video camera just following him, or, you know, following him around. And I would have loved to have seen like how many hours of sleep is this guy getting every night, and how many hours is he sitting in a chair reading. I, I would love to know, you know.
2: Yeah, and and those guys, part of their genius too, I think, is being steeped in education of like Latin and Greek, and you know reading stuff in the original German and all the things that very few of us, if any of us can do now, you know, and ha- having that sort of educational background to fall back on. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, it's like my, my lack of education, com- you know, comparatively speaking, and then like the, how underread I felt, you know, I, tell me if you ever feel like this, but like sometimes I'll, I'll sit back cause I reading lit- literary biography does this to me in particular, uh, where I'm reading about these people and I'm going, Jesus Christ, like I am playing T-ball. Uh, Absolutely, and, you know, and it's like, it can be depressing almost. I mean, it's inspiring too. And I think that's probably the healthier way to look at it, that it, you know, gives you something to shoot for and, you know, causes you to want to raise your game. But it can also just make you feel like you're like a chimpanzee, like flinging your poo around the room. <laughs> Whereas these people are like, you know, uh, in-
2: Well, you read Vidal or Hitchens and, and you'd be a fool not to have that feeling, you know, yeah. um, but, I've you know, I've been reading constantly since, you know, I was in third grade. Uh, and I still just... You go to a bookstore, I'm just astonished at all these people I've never heard of, all the stuff I've never read. You know, especially nonfiction, you know, translations, Indian literature and South American literature. You yeah. know, it's just oh. mind-boggling and humbling.
1: Yeah. Well, don't even get me started, you know. just to, uh, and, and I guess, you know, it's a it's just the... It's, a, it's an embarrassment of riches. That's, I guess, the way to look at it.
2: Yeah, but it, to your point, I do feel like a chimp. <laughs> Someone should spoon me some applesauce <laughs> and just sit me in the corner. Well, but, you know,
1: and it's like I should, I have to, like, complete that thought because you feel like this, like, you know, primitive, essentially, uh, you know, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess that's the complete thought. You feel like a primitive and, you know, the, or I guess the the other side of it is that, I come to that realization just moments or like a day or two after having a period where i'm sitting at the keyboard thinking to myself like this is great do you know what i'm saying yeah. like you go on these like flights of fancy where you get really in love with what you're working on Yep. and then you know the next day you're reading a profile of somebody who's just like a complete heavyweight and it brings you back down to earth
2: i think it's it's Crippling though, if you you think about that too much. Like I used to, um, when I was in college, I started playing saxophone. and I got really into it and practiced, you know, almost every day for like two or three years. And uh, after a while, I just I couldn't listen to myself. I got good enough to know how terrible I was, if that makes any sense. And I couldn't listen to myself practice and then be listening to you know John Coltrane, Charlie Parker. Yeah, Johnny Hodges or whatever and I, I let the fact that those guys were so brilliant and amazing make me stop playing because I would never be able to play like them and I think about that sometimes writing wise like don't even don't even think about it just write what you're going to write don't try to write like anyone else or approximate anyone else or live up to anyone else you know it's going to come out like it comes out and if people think it's it's shit and that's what they're going to think
1: yeah That's a good, that's a healthier approach. It's a healthier approach. I guess it's just, it can be easy to sort of measure yourself against your heroes. You know, it's a, it's an easy trap to fall into.
2: Well, you're in your late thirties, right? You're as smart as you're ever going to get. You're as good a writer as you're going to be. You know, you'll get better, but you're as good as pretty much as you're going to be. And Uh. so you're going to write the book you're going to write no matter what.
1: Jesus Christ, dude. Thanks. Thanks for telling me about my peak. You're like, yeah, a couple short years, you'll be on the downward slide. (laughs)
2: Well, you know, like, some writers get better as they get older, but, you know, like Hunter Thompson, would he did he
1: peak at, like, 35. Yeah, no, I, I, I believe it. I mean, you can, it's, you know, I think it's fairly provable. I mean, with, there are, there you know, the rare exceptions, but I think you look at most writers' or most artists' lives. I mean, look at the Rolling Stones, for God's sakes, you know? It's like you have this concentrated period where you have uh, all of that creative energy working for you, but it doesn't last forever. And, and frankly, nor should it. Like, anybody who has... 60 years of sustained creative brilliance just doesn't deserve to be on planet earth. They need to be on a a, a better planet.
2: (laughs) I know. And, you know, to the point about, uh, you know, stopping, taking substances, one of the drawbacks of that was right after that, I spent a lot of time uh, with my girlfriend in our apartment, you know, uh, eating popcorn and watching friends, you know, or, you know, playing uh, civilization on my computer Uh, whereas that was, you know, those are the meaty years, like all the stuff I didn't write back then kind of bothers me.
1: Oh yeah. 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 I have that too. I have that in spades, like even just recently, like I feel like I should be more productive, you know, and should have been more productive in my thirties, but yeah, I think that's never going to go away. You know, the sense that I need to get more done. Um, But before I let you go, I want to ask you about The Infects and about, you know, because you have kind of an interesting career going for yourself now where you've written, um, you know, uh, adult literary fiction and now you're writing YA and you've got a memoir coming out. I mean, you're sort of working in a lot of different veins. And I'm interested in particular with regard to The Infects, which is a a zombie novel. Is that a fair characterization?
2: Uh, That is a both fair and accurate characterization. Okay. So, yeah. So, you're, you're writing that and
1: like... What prompted it? Because, you know, I think as somebody who uh, writes adult literary fiction, like I'm well aware of the of the difficulties and challenges that uh, one faces trying to find a readership, and I'm aware of the fact that YA fiction tends to have uh, a bit friendlier uh, market, you know, in terms of the, pos- mm-hmm. the possibilities for actually moving copies of a book. And, uh, you know, of course, there's always the dream that the thing takes off and gets made into a movie, and... All of a sudden, you have this giant readership, and you're making a great living writing fiction, and you don't have to do anything else. So, yeah. I think that's a you know uh, that's a natural line of uh, of thinking. And I'm wondering if when you came to the decision to write the Infects, you were considering that business reality. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, was there was it was it all just inspiration and intuition, or were you sitting there going, you know what? Let me try my hand at this because. I think that there might be uh, a more sustainable living in it.
2: Well, you know, I'd written three YA books before, um, none of which were particularly commercial or that I didn't sit down at all and think this is a commercial angle to take on this book, so this is what I'm going to write. I sat down and wrote the book I wanted to for good or ill um, at that point. And so, Before uh, I started The Infects, I definitely had sort of that conversation with my agent, like, well, maybe you should start thinking just in terms of doing something a little more commercial. (laughs) Um, And as I thought about it, you know, zombies are interesting, but I have a huge, uh, interesting commercial and hot kind of at the moment, but I have a huge zombie background, and I've always wanted to write a zombie book, because especially... Um, watching zombie movies, they always make me angry because they don't have consistent rules to them. You know, zombies are fast one time and they're not fast another time and you, blood can drip on you and you turn into a zombie and sometimes you don't. And <laughs> it just seems like they, they never have a consistent logic to them and it's always the part that bothered me. So I wanted to write a book about how that consistent logic needs to either stay consistent or the characters in the book can play with the idea that it's not Um, And so that's a big part of what The Infects is about.
1: Okay. And so, and by the way, did I just, did I screw that up in in saying that you had written adult literary fiction or or had all your novels been in YA? Uh,
2: All my published novels are YA. Okay, got it. I have, I've published a bunch of short stories, uh, adult literary short stories, and I've written uh, an adult novel that uh, went unsold. Okay and then, um,
1: but then there's there's the, there's the memoir coming out which is musical musically related correct
2: Um it's actually it's coming out next uh, August uh it's not a memoir per se it's it's YA fiction but it's about a kid in a punk band so it definitely has uh draws on my personal experience for sure but it's not a straight-up
1: memoir. Oh wow! Why, why, why was I under the impression that that you were writing a memoir about me, like somehow like your music fandom or something? I must be. T-
2: I don't know, but I like that you attributed it to me. It suddenly, sounded like <laughs> I had another book on the shelf, <laughs> yeah, right? Um,
1: and so, you know, the other thing that that comes to mind as I'm thinking about the Infects and the zombie thing is, I'm th- it's, now I'm hearkening back to your childhood on this. Uh, uh, the grounds of this mental institution, like did did, mm-hmm. that, did that factor into your creation of zombies at all? Like, not to be too cruel to mental patients or anything, but I mean, do you think that, that had any? Did, did that like lay the groundwork at all for your, uh, you know, gravitation towards this?
2: I've thought a lot about writing about that experience, and it's one of those things that I just have no way of getting into it, or I haven't figured out how I would yet. You know, if I would, it would be fiction or nonfiction. Um, But it definitely had nothing to do with zombies in in and of themselves. And this book in particular had mostly to do with the fact that uh, my father is a huge cinephile and uh, took me to many very inappropriate movies for my age uh, at any given time, and one of them being uh, the Romero uh, mid-'80s zombie movies, which I was too young to see. And had a great effect. You know, he'd take me to these matinees and we'd watch zombie movies together. Um, and so that's really the germination of, of wanting to actually write a zombie book in the midst of the huge national glut of zombie product.
1: Right, right. Well, I uh, I wish you luck with it. It's been fun talking with you and getting to hear all this. I mean, we've known each other for a while, but I didn't know a lot of this yeah. stuff. So thanks for spending the time, and good luck with everything.
2: Absolutely, man. And uh, next time I'll interview, interview you for an hour. Okay, <laughs> take it easy. All right, brother.
1: All right, you guys, there you go. That is the program. That is Sean Bodwin. That's how you say it, Bodwin. Go get his new novel. It's called The Infects. It is out there now from Candlewick, and you can find Sean online at SeanBodwin.com. He's on Facebook, and his Twitter handle is at Sean Bodwin. This show has a website, it's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad listy if you would like to read. My personal tweeting, the show has a Facebook presence, and if you would like to email me and let me know your thoughts, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, one more reminder, don't forget to go get the app, the official Other People app, the official app for this show. It's a great way and possibly even the best way to listen to the program. New episodes are automatically downloaded, uploaded, uh, however you say it. You can mark your favorite episodes. You can do all kinds of things, and best of all, the app is free. It doesn't cost a dime. And it is available for your iPod, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks again to today's sponsor, the Lit Breaker Ad Network. If you want to get the word out to the Literary Arts and Culture Web, please go visit litbreaker.com. Okay, so I'm still contemplating how I'm going to facilitate this creative breakthrough. That's still on my mind, this uh, psycho-spiritual breakthrough. It is 2012. The end is nigh. The end is nigh? Is that how you say it? The end is near? Just a couple of months left until December and the Mayan apocalypse. So it seems like a good time perhaps to go for broke, to head off into the jungle and to conduct a vision quest. Please remember that Galileo was born on the day that Michelangelo died and that Albert Camus, on the one occasion he was introduced to William Faulkner, said, quote, The man did not say three words to me. End quote. Okay, that's it. I'm done. Thanks for listening. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to clear my head. I'm going to look upwards at the sky. I will be back again soon with another episode, another author, etc. And uh, yeah, that's it. It's over. Uh, The end is nigh. It's nigh. It's nigh. Do you understand me? It's nigh.